Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the first episode of the Handmade Network podcast. My name is Ryan Fleury, and you may be wondering, what is Handmade Network? Uh, Handmade Network is a community of people who have something to do with computer programming, and we are generally trying to improve that by thinking about computers and the physical reality of problems and trying to push uh, computing forward uh, with that in mind. I am joined by a good friend and community member, uh, Dimitri Spanos. He is a he is an industry veteran in, in the field of machine learning and artificial intelligence. Hello, Dimitri. Hi, Ryan. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming on. Um, so you you're kind of unique in the community, uh, in in a sense, because a lot of us tend to be around, I guess, what you would call the game space or uh, similar sort of fields. But yeah, you, yes, yeah. There's lots of lots of games people, I guess, for historical reasons. You come from more of a machine learning sort of background or artificial intelligence more generally. Uh, do you want to talk about what you would describe your field as? Sure. Uh, so, uh, I guess most generally, I'm trained as a computational mathematician. Uh, once upon a time, this was called scientific computing. Um, so, uh, the People like me are people who, for example, um, research ways to improve the fast Fourier transform or research ways to come up with uh, faster solution methods for solving large matrix vector equations. So that's, that's the kind of general category of, uh, of work that I do. I specifically have been, uh, so that, that's my training. I've been uh, working in machine learning and artificial intelligence for uh, a little over 15 years now. Um, and that spans work from, uh, you know, robots and drones, and uh, also work in computer vision, uh, natural language processing. It's quite a broad field. Um, right. So that, that's kind of a very, very big picture view of the kind of thing that I do. So if, if someone else might say, I'm a you know, AAA game engine developer, that's that's sort of a parallel level of granularity of, of category to, to what I do in terms of, uh, so, you know, I, I'd say I'm generally, generally an AI and ML uh, engineer and researcher. Right. Yeah. That's interesting because there's sort of, your field has this very higher level sort of part that's very difficult and, and complicated, which is like the mathematics analytics side, but handmade is sort of also intertwined with like the lower level space. Um, how do you how do you see those two meeting in your field? Because in, I guess within machine learning, there's a lot of analysis people. There's lots of people who are very trained in mathematics as, as like you yourself uh, are trained in, but I guess, how does that, how does that interact with the lower level space in your mind? Uh, well, um, what you're seeing right now is somewhat a, a recent phenomenon. Um, 20 years ago, if you wanted to do what was then called scientific computing, people don't really use this term anymore outside academia. Right. If you wanted to do uh, scientific computing, you were doing very low-level work. You know, you were often mm -hmm. working on um, squeezing out every last cycle from an ancient Fortran, uh, you know, physics <laughs> library that someone wrote in the mid '70s. Right. Um, so it it's only a recent phenomenon that this is not a low-level field. And certainly, when I, uh, you know, when I was in college, right around the turn of the century, um, I was uh, I was learning. It in this this low level style of, okay, we're we're trying to solve this linear system of equations. Here's how we're going to get 
the maximum number of useful operations per cycle. Here are the number of here are the cycle counts for the different fundamental operations. Here are some trade-offs we can make between um, exact answers and faster approximate answers. Uh, so that mm -hmm. uh, that was that was the flavor of the field twenty years ago. Um, there's been in the last say ten years a, a, a big popularizing trend, and so there are. Um, I, I hesitate to use this this analogy, but it's probably the, the best analogy we have for this likely audience. Uh, right. The same way that we now have game engines like Unity or Unreal that are you know big tent, uh, big tent tools that kind of give you a you know B plus level of answer to everything. <laughs> um, similar things have happened in machine learning. Uh, so you've probably heard about TensorFlow. You've maybe less likely uh, have heard about things like Keras. There are all sorts of, uh, in, in the last five or six years especially, all sorts of machine learning frameworks, for lack of a better term. They're not exactly analogous to the role a game engine like Unity or Unreal would play, but right. they are in terms of, uh, they're analogous in the sense of the kind of people who can now do machine learning work who could not do it before because they were never exposed to um, this kind of low-level uh, mathematical computing, uh, and still, these people are not. Uh, these are these people are doing application work with the um, with the established algorithms that exist, but they're not doing algorithm development. So, right. again, to draw an analogy to the the games and graphics world, um, they might use a plugin for doing. You know, whereas a, a games graphics programmer in Unity might use a plugin for um, shadow casting, they're not going to be inventing their own shadow casting algorithm, right? right. Uh, and so that's that's parallel to the kind of thing that that I do. That someone using one of these frameworks might say use a whatever uh, you know a standard convolutional neural network um, and and plug in inputs and outputs, and then and then click go and feed it data. Uh, but right. not going to design a new architecture for a convolutional neural network. They're not going to certainly not going to be working on inventing uh, something new that would be kind of at the same level of of generality as a convolutional neural network. Right. So, do you think that that has, like, on the whole, we could probably say that more people are doing machine learning sort of oriented work in the same way that more people are doing game development. Um, but they're also doing less of it seems like the hard problems in that space. Do you think it's been like more harmful to the to the field in general, or do you think it has produced more benefit? This this is a good question, but uh, kind of complicated and um, <laughs> politically fraught. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you know um, the phrase AI winter. Um, this... um, I don't. No. Okay, so um, AI has already gone through one catastrophic hype cycle. Uh, and that was in the early 80s. Okay. So people who have a, a historical sense of what of of the of the field, uh, many of them, me included, look at what's going on now with the exponential growth of people participating in machine learning uh, through these new kinds of tools, and wonder whether or not we're headed for uh, an AI winter situation in, in the 80s. So, it, to give a, a very brief summary of what happened there, um, in the early 80s, you had the development of uh, increasingly more high-level languages. Uh, Moore's law was, uh, you know, in its um, in, in full effect. Uh, everyone was expecting everything to get twice as fast every you know, every eighteen months. 
Right. Um, and everyone was expecting to use more and more abstract tools. Uh, so for example, a, a large part of the um, commercial AI, maybe not large part, influential part of the commercial AI work back in the early 80s was on uh, so-called expert systems. Uh, a lot of those people were using Lisp. A lot of those people were investing in Lisp machines. So that's a machine whose CPU architecture is optimized to run Lisp code. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> Nowadays, we, we think about that and think, wow, that's crazy, right? But yeah. Uh, <laughs> So that's what was going on in the early 80s. Um, and lots and lots of people were getting in, tons of money being funneled in, uh, you know, DOD money, NSF money, uh, certainly lots, of, lots and lots of venture capital. And then right around 85, 86, people realized, hold on a second, this doesn't work. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the, the entire industry uh, crashed. And this is what, what uh, practitioners from, the, from that era call AI winter, uh, that there was this exponential hype phase um, followed by people feeling like, well, okay, you told me that I was going to replace all of my employees with, you know, two list machines and <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay. So with that historical framework in mind, I'm right. certainly concerned that, um, that something like that might be going on now because I see a lot. Of... So let, let me start with the, the good parts because there are many important good parts. Okay. Uh, there's been an exponential growth. I mean that literally. Like I've, I've tracked industry trends. There's been an exponential growth in the number of people <laughs> participating in machine learning, the number of people who are using machine learning libraries. Right. Um, and at a very high level, this is a good thing um, mm -hmm. because there are many situations in more or less any computing application where you end up doing a bad version of machine learning without really knowing it. So anytime you've written a piece of code where you feel like, Hmm, okay, so this is going to, I need this to go, let's say I'm, I'm working on, I don't know, like, um, let's say I'm working on a game playing algorithm and I'm trying to control how quickly, how quickly some enemy detects your presence and how quickly they start running after you or something, right? So right. sort of a standard kind of game tuning problem. Yes. Um, and you say, well, the, the, you know, I'll say, you know, okay, there's going to be one parameter for how quickly they detect. There's going to be another parameter for how quickly they uh, they start running and there's going to be another parameter for their acceleration or something, right? right. Just a few numbers, right? And that's something right. where you end up fiddling with some knobs and eventually you say, well, I guess it's good enough. Um, or uh, So that kind of activity is, if you find that in almost any, um, any kind of serious software application. So in a business world, you might say, um, you know, let's say you're getting applications for... Um, applications for uh, employment um, and your right. HR firm. Um, oftentimes there are errors uh, in, in the data entry and so you might say, okay, well, maybe we can look over the fact that they didn't enter their age. Maybe we can look over the fact they didn't enter a last name. You know, there, there are whatever, 20 fields, right? And you can you start right. coming up with these business rules um, that are sort of parallel to that game tuning problem where you say, well, it's supposed to be like this, but we're going to say, okay, fine. It, if we if we don't have that, we'll look over it. If we don't have that, we'll look over it. But if we don't have either one, then we're going to just say that's too bad. We're not going to not going to work with it, right? Um, right. So the the common thread here is that there are decision parameters that you can slide around, and you have some kind of a implicit goal that you're trying to to hit, but you don't you don't really know if you're hitting it maximally well. And so machine learning right. is, is excellent at this kind of problem, which is I have some kind of goal that I'm trying to hit. 
I can slide around whether the relative importance of different contributors to a decision, and I can uh, iter iter excuse me, iteratively train an algorithm to do a better and better job based on actual performance in the wild rather than based on my hypothesis about what might be true. Right, okay. okay. So in this sense, the rapid growth of machine learning, I think, is uh, driving all of these sort of soft decision computing processes in a positive direction that's you know, going to be, it's going to work better, it's going to be better backed up by uh, empirical evidence. Um, and if it's done right, we, you know, big asterisk here, but if it's done right, uh, <laughs> we'll also have, we'll also give people a good way to audit these decisions and understand what's going on. Now, I, the asterisk is there because uh, many, you know, uh, many people who've interacted with machine learning before have found it to be inscrutable. Uh, it is certainly, um, it is certainly possible to do it in an inscrutable way. Uh, it would take far longer than, right. than this conversation to explain how not to do it that way. But um, this yes. is actually something that um, that I've been working on for a long time, both kind of in the oh. in the design, uh, trying to apply ideas from human factors and design literature, but also trying to adapt the mathematics so that we come up with algorithms that perform similarly but have uh, better uh, better intuitive characteristics. So anyway, that's, right. that's a big, complicated technical discussion. Uh, but but uh, maybe, maybe I'll just close off this point with: it's definitely uh, it's definitely good that these kinds of technologies are being more widely deployed. So now let me get get to the bad part, which is what started uh, started this conversation. Right. Um, I see lots of people who are basically just you know plugging in you know component A into slot B and hoping that they get outcome C. And if they don't get it, they're just going to say, well, I used the industry leading, uh, you know, TensorFlow library and I followed this uh, highly reputable stack overflow answer. And I mean, come on, I've done my best, right? <laughs> right. Um, and, you know, that, I mean, that, that happens um, everywhere, of course, uh, but it's particularly concentrated in machine learning now just because um, whereas it used to be something that was primarily um, primarily research-oriented practitioners, right? Until about like 2005, it was primarily research-oriented practitioners. And then suddenly there's been this huge explosion of, um, of commercial and amateur interest. So now the, the median mm -hmm. person running a machine learning project has much, much less uh, experience and much, much less structured knowledge than the median person doing a machine learning project 10 years ago. Um, and so I am concerned both about uh, misuse of these technologies. Um, mm -hmm. So there, you know, there was a, um, there's this ongoing question about, uh, for example, um, whether or not uh, socially unacceptable or undesirable assumptions might be baked into machine learning systems through, you know, ideas, uh, you know, assumptions that we we might consider to be, you know, racist, sexist, whatever, right? Um, right. Yeah. Uh, so anytime machine learning systems touch something that have social policy impact. Um, it's very important that you actually understand how the system is working so that you can then say, okay, are we comfortable with the trade-offs that this thing is making? Yeah. Um, and that's, that's something where you just can't answer those questions responsibly if you don't actually know what's going on under the hood. Yeah. When, when you were like kind of going through that, uh, like a thought that came to mind was, um, and this kind of like ties into your last point, but being able to tweak parameters and things like this, like it feels like 
in machine learning, you would have to be very careful about um, making sure you choose which things you can even tweak. Because I guess some things aren't even measurable, like how how happy a player feels when when something happens or something. Right. So actually, that's an excellent point. There's uh, another axis of abuse is that right. um, is that machine learning systems are very good at chasing the goal that you told them to chase, right? Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> and it's not always <laughs> the goal you told them to chase is not always the goal you actually want. Right. Right. Because at some point you're going to have to put a number, a number on something or a success versus failure label on something. Um, and you know, they're very good at chasing that, but if you're not careful about what you're telling the algorithm to chase, you can get, um, you can get very bad results. And you know, this is, Right. Tying this back to to the the game design question, it's actually not usually the case that you want your AI to be super duper great, right? You want it to be fun to play against. You don't want it to completely destroy the player every time. <laughs> right. Whereas if you if you kind of apply a naive, um, you know, first machine learning project level mentality to it, you'd say, well, okay, I want the enemies to defeat the player, right? Their their function is to defeat the player, so I'm right. gonna set the objective function to be kill the player, right? And then, you, know, you do that, and suddenly the you know, um, you know, after your your training period, the AI is completely stomping the player, and nobody wants to play your game because no one, <laughs> right. no one, no one wants to play a game where they're just going to get stomped. Um, right. So there are there are actually people um, who think about this in a more um, contextual, holistic way, which is trying to come up with metrics that correlate with player happiness rather than defeating the player. Right. So. Right. How, you know how much um, how much longer did they play after they encountered this enemy, or um, how often do people complete the level after having an encounter of this kind, or whatever, right? Um, right. And that, that's a much more appropriate um, goal to put in front of a machine learning system because that that's getting you know it, obviously everything is uh, uh, nothing is perfect, right? But that's much closer to what you actually want, right? You're you're telling it. I want the player to have this kind of experience. You're not saying go defeat the player because right. you don't. You know, presenting a challenge to the player is a tactic to that serves the greater goal of giving the player an experience that they want to have. Um, and again, this is some, something where it's very easy to misspecify your goal and have a machine learning system run off and do something you you never intended. Right. Yeah. Because I yeah I guess there's this class of things where you either have to make sure. I guess what's the right what's the right way to say it? Like some things. There, I guess there's two choices here. There's one of like, what are the things that we we pick to tra- like to train on, and then I guess there's also this other side, which is like, what are the things we don't pick intentionally? Right. Uh, so all of these are, all of these are questions that are uh, t- trying to tie the, this into kind of handmade ethos. Um, right. These are these are questions that are difficult to answer responsibly, unless you actually understand what's going on under the hood. Um, right. And you know, we talked a little bit about uh, the low-level aspect of uh, handmade and programming and, and that kind of thing. But an, another important aspect is actually understanding the tools that you're using. So, I mean, there's certainly right. this, this performance and low-level piece, and that's very important. But but equally important is actually understanding the tool that you're using. Um, and so you can't you can't really evaluate whether or not a machine learning system is likely to do what you want it to do unless you actually understand. How it's generating, um, how it's generating those outputs, and how it how it's using that training data. Um, so that that's another aspect where 
you know, in, in the same way that, um, you know, someone using whatever, a 3D rendering library to cast shadows, um, yeah. and eventually they get, you know, like every, let me say, almost, almost every shadow casting algorithm out there uh, has <laughs> some, some undesirable uh, artifact that you can get to, to create if you poke it exactly the right way, right? Uh, right, yeah. But, uh, and so you can't solve that problem if you don't understand how that algorithm is, is casting the shadow. Um, and a, a very similar kind of thing happens if you try to use um, out-of-the-box machine learning tools not knowing what's actually inside the, bo uh, inside the box. Right, yeah. It's not just, because that, that's actually like something that comes up pretty frequent, frequently when I, when I speak to people about this, is um, if, if, you, if we're talking about like understanding what's under the hood, the question of performance usually comes up. Uh, but it sounds like what you're saying, and I, I, would, I would probably say something similar, which is like, there, there is the performance aspect, and there are like massive performance wins for actually being able to do things at that low of a level. But it seems like you're saying there's also this uh, understandability thing, so you can actually understand like the consequences of your choices and how to how to solve these issues that come up. So, just to be explicit, like you're not saying the low level is just for performance. Like there's very important sort of <laughs> there's value in understanding the stack. Right. Exactly. Uh, and you know, for me. Um the the essence of of handmade is always being willing to dig one layer deeper right. and understand what's under what's under the thing you're standing on um if you know if that proves useful right you yes. know obviously you, you could regress infinitely and you know understand your compiler and then understand <laughs> the operating system and then understand the cpu and then understand <laughs> right. the and then understand the physics and then right so yeah. obviously we live finite lives, and so you can't actually keep applying that rule. But uh, for me, it's 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 the the mindset of whatever I'm using right now, I'm you know I'm uh, willing and able to poke one layer down and say, okay, let's actually see what's going on one layer down because maybe there's something there that's important that I can change mm -hmm. uh, to help me do a better job at the layer I'm actually looking at. Yeah, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense, and I I think I would I would describe like the game space similarly, I guess. Um... Yeah, I mean, you, you brought up graphics examples, and they're they're pretty much there. There are these consequences to these things, and if you don't know, if you don't know what the actual underlying system is doing, may, maybe it's useful for you to do like an API call or whatever, and just like have something taken care of for you. But if you don't understand what that API call is doing, and and you encounter a problem or something, there's no possible way you could address it. Right. Um. Or 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 even avoid it. Right. Which is a, a kind of a separate category. Which is. Um, never mind fixing it. At, at least if you know this kind of algorithm has some sore spot that you know if you cast shadows from a weird angle or whatever, that it gives you undesirable results. Then you say, well, maybe I don't exactly know how to fix it, but I at least know not to put those kinds of situations in my application. Which is you know, that, that's at least the beginning of success. Right. Yeah. So it sounds like. From from your perspective, like if you were to if you were to say like hire somebody or something for 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 doing machine learning work, um, you would you would prioritize sort of this like understanding of the stack because otherwise it's otherwise they won't be able to solve problems I guess for you. Certainly not the kinds of problems that I work on. Uh, so to give you an example of the kind of thing that I work on that fuses a lot of these hand handmade ideas together. Mm -hmm. uh, I was working for a financial firm. Uh, as you probably know, um, finance companies uh, often have uh, make trades on real-time exchanges. Uh, so yes. uh, 
there is an important, very important timing component that has to do uh, that ties in directly to very low level uh, performance optimization. And you know, the like on competitive uh, exchanges, you know, microseconds matter, right? Yes. Um, so uh, they were using a an off the shelf um, machine learning library to build some kind of a model. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I know I'm being a bit vague. I'm being deliberately vague just because these are uh, private clients. Right. Uh, yeah. So uh, they were using an off the, sheen, uh, off the shelf machine learning library and it's generally quite a good library actually. It's well designed, uh, reasonably fast. Um, uh, but anyway, they, they were uh, faced with a problem where they were using it um, in, in this real time setting and they, they were trying to find ways to make it go faster. Um, one, you know, the kinds of things that they were exploring were um, simplifying the model, uh, making it use um, fewer uh, fewer data fields. Um, so things where they were compromising on, they were considering compromising on the quality of the output in order to get it to go faster. Um, mm -hmm. The thing that I ended up working on was actually working inside the guts of the machine learning library itself and realizing that, mm -hmm. uh, that the execution path for their particular workflow uh, was atypical enough from the usual execution path that it was not particularly well optimized, uh, and so uh, we ended up replacing, um, a, you know, very low-level internal component of this machine learning library uh, with a you know custom C, uh, C library uh, mm -hmm. that I implemented, you know, again like tuning it down to the down to uh, you know low-level cycle counts and um, you know uh, very um, very detail-oriented work, uh, yes. you know, we were, like trying to re trying to reason about okay, how are we going to keep this data structure in L1? How are we going to keep this data structure in L2? Um, right. You know, and how do we figure out how do we make trade-offs? Like, okay, over here there's a binary tree, but maybe we should replace that with uh, just a you know linear linear scan through a list because of uh, you know because that might uh, help us with branch prediction in another part uh, another part of the code. Uh, yeah. Downstream part of the code, um, and so uh, we were able to make it much, much faster than uh, a very widely used, you know, one one of the most popular machine learning libraries in the world. Um, we yeah. were able to make it much, much faster, uh, like a factor of ten faster, um, by directly uh, performing surgery on the guts of the code, mm -hmm. and combining that with this sort of data-oriented principle of okay, here's the actual workload we're running. This is a general purpose tool, but here's the actual workload we're running. Right. And when you trace through and say, okay, this specific workload, when it meets up with this algorithm, it has this unavoidable inefficiency, right? Because we're, you know, whatever, we're, call we're calling it with a funny batch size that it's not expecting. And, right. you know, for whatever reason, that batch size is the batch size that is important for our problem. And they, there's no way that, the, that a generic library author would have, uh, would have reason to anticipate or design for this. And so having this um, both a low-level understanding of the programming, but also a low-level understanding of the learning algorithm itself so that I could say, yes, it's, it is indeed mathematically equivalent to rip this out, replace it with this other thing. Um, and then you know, we get performance gains at zero, uh, we get computational performance gains at zero uh, cost in terms of the, the quality of the model. Right. So that, that's that's not the only only kind of thing I do, but that's one of the one of the important pieces of my work. And certainly, that's not something that that someone would be able to 
help with without both a low level understanding of um, the nuts and bolts of of the program, but also a low level understanding of how the actual learning uh, learning system works. Right. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess a lot of that problem seemed like not even necessarily being able to be like, uh, you know, uh, like CPU optimization guru, but rather having the ability to be specific about what you would like to happen. Because I, uh, right. one of the things that uh, I encountered at some point was uh, I had written like a simple linear allocator, for example, and uh, one of my coworkers said something like, you know, just use just use the CRT like malloc or whatever. Uh, like, you, you, there's no possible way you can uh, optimize an allocation uh, routine more quickly than like the people who work on GCC do or something. Right. But it's and it, it's true if you have to be everything to everybody. Exactly. Yeah. That's sort of what it, where I was going is it's probably true that I probably wouldn't do as as good of a job optimizing like malloc, but but it's if it's just a simple linear allocation, um, it's a much simpler problem and it might be equivalent in my particular case, which sounds like maybe the same idea. I mean, it sounds like you guys actually did more, uh, more of the low level optimization stuff than, than I'm sort of referring to there, but. And, and merely, merely this ability to recognize specificity in contrast to generality is an important an important skill, and again, I think an important right. of, of handmade, which is recognizing, okay, this existing library, it's whatever, 25,000 lines or something, yes. this solves 17 problems, right? Yes. We have a very specific version of one problem. Yes. So obviously, the, li the library author has no way to foresee our problem, and even if they could foresee that our problem would exist at some point, it wouldn't make sense for them to contort their design to fit our one problem, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, whereas for us, it, it's uh, you know, it's a very good investment to say, okay, we're going to take this thing. It does seventeen things. We're you know, we don't actually care about what it does for the rest of the stuff. We're going to take right. this one localized piece of this of this engine. We're going to surgically cut it out, and we're going to plug in a different thing that is super optimized for our exact use case. And we don't care that it's bad for all the other use cases because we're not running the other use cases. Right. Yeah. That's that's interesting, and I guess that gets at this idea of programming at a very high level where you're just sort of like just tugging the strings of what needs to happen. But, but what you, I mean, you've provided an example in, in the wild where it's very useful to be able to say like, no, like I actually want to do this specific thing. Um, I don't want to be this high of a level and having that ability to move up and down is sort of what uh, is useful and is, is most useful in that case. Yes, definitely. Yeah. That, that's, that's interesting. So how, how much, uh, like when you, when you are tasked with, uh, let's say like, uh, making, making a routine faster, um, how often do you find yourself doing that kind of work? Like, it, it seems like it'd be relatively often, right? Just being able to simplify what the work, cause I mean, the quickest work to do is zero work at all. So if you can skip steps or something, um, so do, do you find yourself like, is that the majority of optimization work do, that you have to do? Or do you have to do a lot of like hardcore like count the cycles in this in this section or i would say only 10 ish percent um okay. comes down to actually counting cycles and doing very low level like um you know worrying about the, the generated assembly um, right you know it i i do that sometimes but i'd say it's maybe 10 percent of the work that i do interesting uh, it's much more common to figure to do things like so let, let's do like chunk this up as like maybe 10 percent is 
worrying about it down at the level of cycles and assembly. Uh, maybe another 20% is um, worrying about it kind of at the level of the C programming model, right? So right. how can I arrange it so that there aren't branch, there aren't unpredictable branches? How do I arrange it so that, um, you know, my memory, memory scans are linear, that I'm not straddling right. a cache boundary unless I really have to. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, those are things that are one level up from actually worrying about the assembly instructions and cycles. Yes. Um, so, you know, maybe 20% is that, and there's another you know 20% that's, um, you know, do we even have to do this at all? Is there a way? Right. <laughs> is there a way that, um, you know, is there some portion of this calculation that gets done for a purpose that has nothing to do with what we actually want in terms of? Yeah. Right. That's that's interesting then because it sounds like you're saying like in order to get, um, I don't know, I don't know exactly how much better, but you can get just a like quite a bit better. Um, than you would have been otherwise just by being able to like write a simple C routine to do something instead of calling into like a library or something like you oh, can... yeah. if you can if you can program reasonably against the imaginary machine that C presents to you right um, that already puts you in the top 10 percent of, of people right uh, and you know you, like you'll you'll miss a little bit well, I'll, I'll say it's usually only a little bit that you miss by not digging down one layer lower and worrying about the generated assembly and, and specific cycle counts. Right. Uh, you know, some, sometimes that is essential, right? I, I don't mean to, to, uh, I don't mean to diminish that, uh, yes. but really if, if you can just program reasonably well against the, the imaginary machine that C presents to you, um, that, that already puts you in the top 10% of, um, uh, of people doing doing this kind of work, I think. Interesting. Yeah. So, from my recollection, you worked in the educational space as well, right? Uh, well, I taught at the University of Southern California for a couple of years. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Years. And did you? So, because I mean, I don't know. You probably mentioned uh, the, I guess, the range of years that you were like actually studying at school. But did, did you? I'm actually curious. Like, did you see a shift? in what people doing this kind of work were being taught from that uh, to like more today-ish um, or like, I guess, what, whenever you taught, did you see? I, a sh I, saw, I saw the beginning of it. So I was, I was teaching uh, at USC uh, 2009 to 2011. I think that's right. Okay. Um, so there was definitely a shift happening. Um, there were a couple of different things. Okay. Um, a couple of different things happening at once. One was that uh, you've probably heard this phrase, deep learning. Um, yes. It's sort of an umbrella term, um, okay. but deep learning was just sort of... So uh, deep learning actually has some history with the AI winter of, uh, of the 80s. Uh, okay. So deep learning has to do with uh, neural networks. So neural networks can have... One of the ways you can look at neural networks is how many layers of neurons they have stacked on top of each other. So if it, there are many layers, then it's a deep network. If there's only one layer, then it's a shallow network, right? Right. Uh, and uh, in the mid-2000s, like 2005 to 2010, um, there were uh, lots of practical, uh, practical changes in how algorithms for training uh, deep networks um, were tuned. So uh, mm. 
so there was that and uh, we also had in parallel the rise of CUDA and OpenCL so uh, general purpose uh, compute on on graphics cards right um, those two things together made a huge difference for uh, neural network computations they didn't make as much of a difference for um, for other kinds of machine learning learning algorithms so that's part of the reason why the hype cycle the last you know last 15 years or so has been so focused on deep learning uh, because it it ties in very very naturally to um, to GPUs and general purpose GPU computing yeah um, so so that that was one of the drivers um, I, it's it's hard not to uh, dip a toe into political <laughs> political topics here my I think it's fair to say that the neural network side of machine learning, and you know, for, for those those of you listening here, I assure you this is actually not the entirety of the machine learning world, right? That neural <laughs> maybe twenty to thirty percent of the machine learning world. There's a huge, huge world of machine learning out there. Uh, but I would say that the the neural network side of of machine learning, um, those people have been more uh, more tolerant of black box kinds of approaches than other other arms of the field um, and so I think that there was partially a cultural shift in that direction that um, the, these were people who already felt like um, they were comfortable not uh, not having completely transparent uh, understanding of of the models they were working with um, and so I, that, that's one part that's one component as well that there was a cultural okay. shift in terms of which group of academics was the most uh, most prominent at that time, hmm. uh, and then certainly there was um, there was spillover from the web and mobile, where um, you know I, I I don't need to tell you that uh, it is certainly a very large portion of that of that world has a strong uh, strong feeling of you know don't reinvent the wheel if someone else has right. If someone else has done this, you definitely shouldn't do it. The, the absolute last thing you should do is try to solve yes. the problem for yourself, right? <laughs> right. Um, and you know, I, I mean, that's that's a, a bit of hyperbole, but uh, I think it's not that far from um, from the truth. Um, I, I've certainly had, I've certainly worked on projects before where, um, for example, we had to build a custom. Uh, well, so let me. We didn't necessarily have to build a custom uh, training tool. So a training tool is something where you load up a data item and then a human marks it as, you know, yes, no, or like four out of five or whatever. Right. So that's, okay. that's the kind, kind of UI that I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we needed one of these for a project I was working on. Uh, this was 2016, 2017. Um, and I suggested, okay, we're, you know, we can quickly put this together with, with these three tools and it will take me maybe a week to, um, to get all that together. And then we can start the training process. Um, and uh, I was um, uh, somewhat disappointed by the amount of resistance I got for that. <laughs> they they insisted on you know no, no there must be an open source project out there that we can use, um, and you know they spent three weeks searching for an open source project and oh, wow. they, uh, did not find one that was suitable. And so we ended up doing the thing that I suggested. In... <laughs> anyway, it, it was it was somewhat frustrating. Right. Um, so. I think that 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 um, 
that uh, hesitation to build something from the ground up um, that that's a, a kind of a cultural artifact that, that has spilled over from the web and mobile world and I mean every industry now is is um, experiencing spillover from web and mobile um, so I think yeah that, that's just something that that we also got in the in the machine learning and AI world yeah that makes sense and do, so it sounds like we are May, we have been maybe overestimating the benefit of of code reuse and uh, yeah, not reinventing the wheel. Yeah, I agree. I I think um, I think it's it's certainly good not to do work you don't have to do. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's also good to uh, to understand that someone else doesn't have your same problem, and so they're not going to design it to solve your same problem. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's good. It's good to not do work that you don't have to do but it's also good to make the computer not do work that it doesn't have to do right so that, that's another that's another important aspect as well um, yeah but you know e even you know with this uh, with this library that I was talking about earlier with the with the financial application uh, this is really I think quite good code overall like for for a general purpose tool it right. is reasonably done the architecture is good the, the code quality is pretty good I mean, it's C plus plus, which is not my not my cup of tea, but right. that's fine. Um, yeah. Given that it's C plus plus, it's pretty reasonable. Um, so, you know, th this is like this is starting from a, a good pedigree, and despite that fact, uh, these people didn't you know they didn't solve our specific problem because why would they solve our our specific problem? And right. Like when I make a library, I don't solve somebody else's problem. I don't. I spend zero amount of time thinking, <laughs> you know. What's the you know what's the like esoteric use case that two percent of our users will, um, will uh, will need this for? Right. Uh, it, you know, it's just I mean, it's 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 economics, right? You're not you're not going to if you're building a general purpose tool, you're not going to sacrifice the architecture of the general case to serve a very rare specific case that you don't even have. Yes. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And do you do you think so? you've you've sort of outlined why this sort of you know being able to work under the hood is is beneficial at all in machine in the machine learning space but I, I would assume you would estimate that there are like similar benefits not being reaped in like the web and mobile world as well right I would assume so uh, I don't have deep knowledge of either of those yeah um, either of those well so I, I think there's probably something where I have sort of tangential knowledge, um, mm -hmm. which is having an understanding of how databases work, uh, database engines like, you know, Postgres or Oracle or MySQL or whatever, right? Right, yeah. Um, so understanding how that works at sort of a low level, like if you, uh, I don't want to dive into uh, too much DB jargon here, but <laughs> in, in relation to re relational databases, there's this concept of a join, which is you have some some data items in one table, some data items in another table. You want to yes. link them, right? So there's this concept of a join. Um, if you think a little bit about how that must be implemented under the hood in the database engine, it um, it informs you about what kinds of queries are going to be reasonably fast and what kinds of queries can't possibly be fast no matter what, right? Yes. Um, so that's something where, it, you know, it's totally common to have people using um, object relational mappers that generate 
database queries for them from their, um, you know, from their, you know, Python or Ruby or PHP code or whatever, right? Or JavaScript, I guess, is the thing these days. Yeah. So it's, um, that's, an, that's an area where I, I think having a basic understanding of how a database engine works and how it, you know, how it has to work under the hood um, could, uh, could, could pay off in, in terms of um, making a more responsive UI or a UI that takes, that consumes less bandwidth because it's querying for uh, a more reasonable subset of, the, of data or, or whatever. Uh, I, you know, again, I'm, I'm far from an expert on web and mobile anything. But, right. Yeah. Um, but I, I suspect that that that's an area where um, having some under the hood understanding would be would be beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. I br- I bring it up because it's another thing that I that I sometimes hear is like, uh, well, you know, in game in game development, that's the problem you have to solve. But here in maybe like the enterprise application space or here in the web space, we don't have to care about about that granularity of problem. I guess. That's that's partly true. So enterprise is kind of its own beast, uh, yeah. <laughs> because the enterprise users uh, generally their souls have been extracted. Uh, <laughs> these these people are just trying to get through their day. <laughs> right. yeah, let, let me not say extracted; their souls have been crushed. Um, <laughs> you know, th- these people are used to working with extremely bad software, just terrible. <laughs> right. How, however bad you think. Uh, you know, normal day-to-day software is enterprise software is much, much worse. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah. these are people who are accustomed to, you know, whatever, like you want to update an email in a calendar invitation. It sits there and you know, it churns for 30 seconds because who knows what, right. Who knows yeah. what you're doing up, updating, yeah. you know, eight bytes worth, eight bytes worth of, of data right. information. But that's yes. just not <laughs> Right. But that's just how, um, uh, that's, that's just the sort of accepted, uh, accepted reality in enterprise. Um, I, I think people just have just accepted that software is going to be extra terrible there. Um, <laughs> and, uh, so, it, you know, I, I think it's true that if, if an enterprise developer tells me, oh yeah, well, we don't have to worry about that because it's fine. It's just an enterprise application. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a little depressing, but I can't really disagree. Uh, certainly, right. certainly no one is going to get, I've never heard of anyone getting a promotion for making a super duper great enterprise application that is nicely <laughs> responsive and never crashes. And yes, I, I've never heard of that even like even mythologically from, you know, a friend of a friend who said, oh yeah, there was that one time that Bob got that promotion for making the, you know, the, um, the HR HR tool workhouse. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so I think the, in the enterprise world, you have um, very, very low expectations and essentially zero incentive to make things good. Um, so I don't know. Enterprise is its own thing. Web on the other, web and mobile, uh, mobile especially, um, there are places where it really matters that. Yes. You know, if you chew the battery a lot that's going to be bad right uh, if if your thing um starts behaving erratically when the wi-fi is uh is erratic that's going to be bad um generally anything anything that touches um ui is 
I would say that it's mandatory to to care about these kinds of precise, uh, detailed concerns, but it certainly helps a lot. I mean, the the difference between using a touch application that is responsive and doesn't lag, and you know, uh, scrolls at sixty frames per second, and all that. Right. The difference between that and you know, some janky piece of awful bloatware that you, know, you touch a button and it you know highlights itself two seconds later and. <laughs> Yes. I mean, you, you know the kind of thing I'm talking about, right? We've yes. all, had to, all had these awful experiences. Right. So I would I would be much less willing to accept that kind of reasoning from a mobile application developer than I would be from, you know, an enterprise internal tool developer. Right, yeah, that makes sense. And I guess in, increasingly, like, we, we talk about horrible mobile apps or something that are just really frustrating, but I guess increasingly it's it's kind of becoming more important as as web technology seems to be like creeping into homes with oh, like yeah. the light switch that has to communicate with the server and now it's not working sort of thing or like I need to update um, like firmware in my thermostat or something. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, pretty soon you're you're going to have you're going to have firmware in your fork or something, right? It's going to be yeah. you know, <laughs> right. You know, yes. you know here's a, a fun thought experiment is how many web servers are actually running inside your house probably <laughs> right. probably yeah. A lot. yeah yeah it's yeah so in a sense it's there's like we can it, it's it's funny because we can sort of talk about um like frustrating applications and and it kind of scares me a little bit because i i think i think of that or like oh like screw this like gmail app or whatever but I'm also like, pretty soon, like it's not just going to be Gmail; it's going to be uh, the lock on my front door, sort of. Thing. Oh yeah, no, I mean that that already exists, right? The um, yeah, uh, like web updatable uh, key code, right? Key code locks that that definitely already exists. Yeah, um, which is maybe means I I guess we should I guess people should maybe start thinking about about like the security of everything more. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, th this this falls in the the general general uh, category of the the so-called Internet of Things, right? Um, yes. Which I don't know. I, I think it's just disaster waiting to happen. I mean, the <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Um, the the networking of everything is just a terrible idea. I I don't yes. know how else to how else to phrase that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like it maybe if there were some really some really easy to lock down local area network technology maybe that would be reasonable i i, I could i could at least imagine that um uh, imagine that being being reasonable but you know right. where we are these days with like you know generally open wi-fi access points and every you know every device you buy now wants to get on that network and wants to be sending you know wants to be chatting with http to i mean god only knows where those messages are going right Right. Yeah. Um, and and similarly, how easy it would be to um, to hack them. Um, yes. Like the 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 number, um, the 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 number of uh, potential vulnerability spots is quite quite scary. And yeah. uh, you know, I'll I, I will I, I won't name the name, but I'll I'll quote a friend of mine from Silicon Valley who. Um, who said uh, uh, something, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but said something like, you know, if you think that the software written by software companies 
is bad, wait until you see software written by hardware companies. <laughs> right. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think that's the, that, that's the situation we're in now with the Internet of Things, that these are, these are like, you know, Philips now has a web-enabled light bulb, right? I mean, yes. You know, apparently, that's a thing the world wanted. <laughs> right. Uh, so we have a web-enabled uh, light bulb. Um, Philips is a very traditional company. I would be extremely surprised if there isn't some way to um, uh, some way to, to compromise that thing's uh, internet connection. And if it's not the Philips one, it's going to be someone else's, right? It doesn't have to right. be right there. There are so many of these um, increasingly in you know in our day-to-day -day lives that uh, I don't know. Uh, it I don't like it. Yes. <laughs> Right, and I and I guess like this, this also ties back into the uh, thousand foot view versus uh, uh, one. I don't know what the saying is, one foot view or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> of like, not only are there is there like this stack of vulnerabilities, but as developers kind of take themselves away from the details, their ability to reason about these vulnerabilities also decreases decreases by like orders of magnitude. Yeah, not not just the ability, but even the. Um the awareness and the uh, i mean the, i think the psychological effect is um is important as well you know I, I remember when alexa was first on the market and i looked at that and thought no this is like this thing is obviously listening to you the, the whole time i can't imagine a yes. way to build this device that it's not actually listening to you the whole time right yes <laughs> uh, and yes there like I'm actually reasonably familiar with the at least the publicly available information about how Alexa works under the hood. I know okay. that I, I know that there's a special circuit that's supposed to respond to the wake up word. Like I, I, I know all that, right? So yes. like, I'm listening about this and thinking, oh no, haha, ha, you don't know about the ASIC that does the, the, the wake up. <laughs> I'm I'm well aware. Um, <laughs> but that I mean that that's an implementation detail, right? There's no way you can't make a thing that responds to you talking to it without it listening for you to talk to it. Right, that, yes. Um, and you know, oh, big surprise! Now, you know, however many years later, we discover, oh yeah, you know, Amazon has recordings of, well, you know, all sorts of scandalous things they weren't supposed to have recordings of. And yes. Have, you know, and I mean, an entirely separate non-technological problem is that they have humans listening to these things. That right? Did anybody know that? Yeah. Did anybody know that uh, that Amazon was going to have? you know, minimum wage customer service reps listening to the argument you have with your spouse over your divorce. I, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I don't know. Like, as soon as that thing came on the market, I thought, wow, this is, I don't know why why this exists. Please take this away. But Yes. Uh, and, you know, thankfully, you know, knock on wood, I, I have managed to avoid having any such device in my home. <laughs> right. Um, but, yeah. but, you know, that, that's something where um, having a broader perspective helps you um helps you understand like okay how this thing must be working sort of sort of in the scary way right like they tell you it's not scary but how non-scary can it really be right uh, but um you know I, I think in the same way that uh a, a similar kind of thing happened with social media and facebook where some you know people in in my generation saw Facebook as like, well, okay, like I can reveal some of my private information if it means that I get to connect up with my, my buddies from college or whatever, right? Um, and certainly there seems to have been a big cultural shift 
um, with people who just share by default everything everywhere on social media, uh, or at least a, a large portion of the population who do. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't mean this to be uh, pointing a finger some, at someone, but rather to identify a cultural shift in how we use technology in general, where we just, a large portion of the population seems to assume that it is benevolent by default. And yes. um, I think that's not a great, uh, you know, having having seen the insides of many of these companies, I think that's not not great, not a great assumption. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It, I, I guess comes back to organizational incentives and uh, kind of like how we how we structure those incentives. Um, yeah, and I mean, some of it is just um, you know, I, I'm uh, there's this this famous quote from Eric Schmidt of, of Google who said something like. You know, we we figure out where the creepy line is, and we walk up right up to that line, but we don't cross it. <laughs> and I think he was saying this it was supposed to be a good thing, but I thought, you know what? Maybe <laughs> take a few steps back from the creepy line because someone's <laughs> going to make a mistake, right? Right. Like <laughs> this is like telling me, you know, that like the Grand Canyon. I'm just going to walk right up and stand right on the edge, yes. and you know, <laughs> um, right. make no no affordance for errors or maybe there's a gust of wind or maybe you know my shoes are slippery or something right yeah um yeah i'm only going to i'm only going to get very close to oncoming traffic yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah um i actually i i skipped over something that i actually wanted to go back and talk about as well um because we're, we're kind of off on uh this interesting tangent but um you being being a machine learning person and me like like my my knowledge of ai is like decision trees like i know nothing yeah right um i'm curious about you, you had mentioned like machine learning consists of a lot more i th- i think of i think of neural networks when i think of machine learning but you right. explicitly they have had an extremely successful marketing blitz yes i'm i'm curious to know like if you could just list out the the categories that are not neural networks um for both myself and people listening because i i feel like i i don't want to i don't want to brush over that that nuance sure um so probably the next widest used tool is um what i would generally call tree ensembles uh which is a generalization of the decision tree idea so instead of having one decision tree you have thousands of them and okay there are there are statistical reasons for why it makes sense to have thousands of them um, okay. Roughly, it's like having one. Instead of having one decision tree, you have a thousand decision trees. They're slightly, they're each slightly different, and then you average the result. That, that's kind of a, a loose understanding of how a tree ensemble works. Okay. Um, tree ensembles actually are, at least as of 2017, 2018, the dominant method on machine learning competitions. Uh, so, um, neural networks are have been uh, extremely good at things like. Uh, vision and audio and anything that's kind of like a media kind of application, uh, they've yes. they've had much less, much less competitive success. I mean, they're, they're fine, they're good, but they're they've been much less comp- comparatively impressive in more traditional kind of business intelligence applications that are mm-hmm. currently dominated by things like tree ensembles. So that's okay. one kind of thing. So like, if you want to if you want to go down that rabbit hole, uh, if you you should look at gradient boosted trees. That's the yes. that's the current um, kind of I would say default default good tool for for that. Yes. Okay. So there's that. Um, there's this whole world of Bayesian 
um, Bayesian probability modeling, which is kind of its own uh, its own thing, but they have their own tools of um, um, for answering machine learning and AI problems in the framework of probability um, and especially Bayesian probability. So Bayesian probability, to, just to give a uh, okay, so this is a super political topic within within academia. So okay, uh, okay, <laughs> Bayesian probability. I'm going to summarize Bayesian probability as um, trying to model, so kind of uh, plain vanilla frequentist probability is like I roll the die. If it's a fair die, one out of six times I expect to get a one. One out of six times I expect to get a two, etc. Yes. Uh, so that's kind of the the kind of high school level probability. Bayesian right. probability is trying to model uh, levels of subjective belief based uh, in the language of probability. So it's it's actually kind of a different thing, uh, okay. even though it, it links up with probability. It's trying to model levels of belief using probability, and then more. Uh, the essential part is levels of evidence. So I start out with some kind of a belief uh, about you know I think I'm pretty sure the sun's going to come out tomorrow. Um, you know, ninety nine point nine 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 nine. Yes, and then. <laughs> when I get a new piece of data, how much should that modify my level of certainty? So that, that's the, the core operation of Bayesian probability. Right. Um, so anyway, that's another very important, very powerful uh, arm of the machine learning and AI world. Uh, there is uh, a highly overlooked uh, nowadays um, arm, which is what I'd call classical planning and logic. So these are things okay. that actually use like formal rules and say, okay, I... I have a deterministic system. I know that it obeys these rules. How do I optimally search the space of all possible inputs I could give to this system so that I get the output that I want? So, like, dynamic programming is one of the one of the examples of this kind of thing. But there's actually a very rich literature on graph search algorithms and tree search algorithms, and hmm. um, and, and actually, uh, I don't know if you're, you're you've maybe heard of AlphaGo. Uh, so that's Google's Go playing AI. Yes. Uh, so uh, that's actually an interesting fusion of neural networks. So that's not a pure neural network, okay? That's, okay. that's often, often mis misunderstood. Um, that's, that's using a neural network to evaluate the relative desirability of different positions on the board. Okay. Uh, of different configurations of the board. So that's the part that the neural network has done, is doing, and is, you know, is, does much, much better than anything else we have to date. But then there's the a classical game planning algorithm under the hood. Uh, and it's sort of like this thing called alpha beta pruning. So if you want to go search for alpha beta pruning, um, that's that's kind of the entry level version of this algorithm for uh, for classical game planning. Uh, so okay. anyway, AlphaGo was a really interesting combination of this classical technique with this new deep learning technique um, working together. Um, so anyway, that's... Uh, that's another uh, another branch of um, AI and ML. Uh, what else? There's there's a currently out of fashion but maybe coming back um, branch of work that was done in the '90s. Um, the the sort of exemplary algorithm from that that era was the so-called support vector machine, uh, which is a very pretentious name for something that <laughs> is like kind of a cool idea, but it, I think it's a dumb name. So. Um, <laughs> Okay. The, the the essence of that was trying to model um, trying to model decision problems as geometry problems. So it, you know you have hmm. a bunch of uh, 
you have points that represent possible uh, inputs and you want to say, okay, for this set of points, I want to say yes. And for this set of points, I, I want to say no. Right. Um, and you can say, okay, well, what if I try to solve this as a geometry problem? And I say, for example, these two sets of points are separated by a line, right? I mean, it's not guaranteed that they can be separated by a line, but let's say, let's try to figure out whether or not they're separated by a line, right? Right. Okay. Um, so that, that's kind of the basic idea of the so-called support vector machine. Um, and there are much, you know, much richer ideas there. Um, another, another category of thing, um, is, excuse me, um, so-called zero learning, uh, methods. Um, the, the, so the zero learning methods are things like nearest neighbor search. So, uh, I have, um, you know, let's say I want to decide whether or not someone's going to be a buyer for my new t-shirt right and i have right. uh, i have an existing database of um you know whatever a million people who have visited my website before uh so a nearest neighbor kind of learning system says okay i'm going uh instead of trying to figure out what this guy's going to do i'm going to try to find the 10 most similar people and then take an average over them and say okay well the 10 most similar people all bought the shirt so this guy's probably going to buy the shirt um, okay yeah so that's another category of learning algorithm. Uh, it has uh, the benefit of not actually having to do any work up front. You just collect the data. Um, yeah. like there's, no, there's no model, right? Like the, right. the entirety of the system is collecting the data and having this giant database. And then, um, uh, and then all of the work gets done at runtime. So this is actually an interesting, um, interesting trade-off in, uh, in machine learning as well, which is trading off costs that you pay uh, to build a model at uh, at training time versus cost that you pay um, at the time that you actually want to make a prediction or a decision. So that's why that, that's why these things are are sort of jokingly called zero zero learning. Right. Yeah. Algorithms. Yeah. Yeah. I was curious because it's it's interesting for a machine learning algorithm to be called zero learning. Right. I guess <laughs> if there's no like learning occurring, I guess. Right. Yeah, so the, the the knowledge is represented implicitly in the collection of data points rather right. than in a set of rules or a model that you build. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, uh, so I don't, that's, a, that's a pretty good survey. Um, yeah. There, I mean, there are many, many other other techniques, but that probably covers maybe 80% of the, 80% of the world out there. Okay, yeah, interesting. Yeah, so for anybody who wants to uh go uh dive into to machine learning you don't have to you don't have to go through tensorflow i guess <laughs> yeah, that, that would be a bad place to start i think <laughs> tensorflow is good at the, at the thing that it does which is chaining together the kinds of computations that you need to do for convolutional neural networks and it right. doesn't do much else well <laughs> yeah um great well i i think we're coming up to near the end uh, of, of the time that I have you for, uh, do you have anything that you would like to, to broadcast to listeners? <laughs> um, I, I don't think so. I just, uh, I'm, I'm excited for this, this podcast. I, I think, uh, handmade network is, is, uh, really a great community. It's been a pleasure uh, to be part of it for several years now. Um, I think, uh, you know, and we should, I would also like to, uh, give uh casey moratoria a shout out and uh, thank him for being the nucleus of bringing yes. all this together 
Um, I, I certainly think that, you know, I, I wish I had had something something like this, something like Handmade Hero, something like Handmade Network when when I was learning. Right. Um, so I, I am grateful for him having kicked this off. Um, and yeah. Yeah, uh, I think that's it. Cool. Yeah, and actually, uh, I, f- I forgot to ask you, um, speaking of Casey, he recently built TensorFlow on Windows. Oh, yes, I watched that stream. That was quite entertaining. Yes. Uh, have Have you had the pleasure of doing the same? Uh, no, only because only because <laughs> I, I was not not so crazy. You're not, um, a, you're not a masochist? No, I mean, if you saw what he had to do to get it to work, it was, um, it was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty detailed. Uh, yes. And I mean, you would, you would have to have Casey's level of, um, uh, Casey's level of both stubbornness and attention to detail <laughs> to be able to, to diagnose why it wasn't working. Right. Yes. <laughs> okay. Great. Well, uh, it's been a pleasure, Dimitri. Thanks for thanks for yeah, coming likewise. on the show. I really, I really appreciate the the chance to talk to you. Um, yeah, thank you, and uh, thanks everybody else for f- listening. Uh, and hope to hope to see everybody next time. All right, very cool. All right. Thanks, Ryan. All right, yep. Thanks. Yep. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.